Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. And this is the Tumble Podcast, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're talking about one of our favorite foods. Brains. Fun fact about Marshall that you might want to know from the way he said brains. Brains. He once wrote a zombie rock opera. Mm, Yeah, which you can listen to on Spotify if you want to. Just look for Just One Bite by The Unbearables, my old band. That promotional message aside, <laughs> uh, that's to say that Marshall knows a thing or two about brains. Yeah, a little bit. Did you know, though, that they're not just for eating? The brain is actually really important. It's true. For living. <laughs> in all sorts of animals, except chickens, not so much. Well, it's in humans, it's responsible for how we form thoughts, how we move, what we remember, how we experience the world, who we are, and so much more. But how do we know all this? If you start from scratch and assume that you've never heard anything about this word brain before, where in our body would all of these thoughts come from? What would control what we do and how we move? I mean, I guess, you know, when you, when you think about thinking, like you always think it's coming from your head, but that's all stuff that we know already, right? Yeah, so I'm saying if we didn't know that it came from our head, where would we think that it came from? Maybe we'd assume something else. Like, how would you even begin to look? Like, what clues would you have? Well, that's where our friend Rachel comes in. Sure, my name is Rachel Berman, and I am a postdoctoral resident in neuropsychology. Rachel studies people's brains, and she's going to be our guide through the very interesting stories behind how scientists learned about the brain. So back in the time of the ancient Egyptians, they actually used to take the brain and toss it away because they thought that it was a useless organ. They had no idea what it did. When the ancient Egyptians were mummifying their pharaohs, they would take very careful pains to preserve every single organ, and especially the heart, because they thought the soul lived in the heart. But they just threw the brains away. Yeah, so if you think about it, there's all these brainless people in the afterlife. <laughs> what are they doing there? <laughs> yeah, just, like, who knows? Maybe they weren't using it that much anyway. <laughs> but they have dogs and yeah. money. <laughs> yeah, they have tons of dogs. They've got money. they got all the cats they could want. Sometimes alligators. <laughs> well, so basically the Egyptians were saying, you won't need your brain. <laughs> You'll need all kinds of other stuff, not your brain. Eventually, people started to realize that the brain wasn't just the stuffing that's in your head. As time went on, there were physicians throughout history who started to realize that, wait, maybe something, maybe there is something about the brain um, that's controlling behavior or accounting for different things, because they noticed that when people had head injuries or when people... um, or when people died and they were able to look at their brains afterwards and saw that there was some sort of problem in there, then they're starting to realize that maybe the brain is in charge of, you know, behavior or personality. So people had to get hurt or die 
for doctors to pay attention to the brain? Unfortunately, yes. Traumatic brain injuries, like when you hit your head really hard in an accident, and things like brain tumors, strokes, or diseases that affect the brain can change what you can do physically and mentally. So she said personality too, which is interesting. Yeah, so that's like basically who you think you are, who you are as a person. And that that's so personal, but that can change. Mm. So if I don't like somebody, I should just whack them on the head and see if they get better? I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> but that actually brings us to one of the most, if not the most, famous cases in neuroscience. Which neuroscience is the study of the brain. Yes. So back in the 1800s, a man named Phineas Gage was leading a normal life working as a railroad foreman in Vermont. Part of his job was to blast away rock to make room for the railroad. And um, there was an explosion, an accident, and it sent a long iron rod through his skull, through his head, right through his face. It was kind of gory. And it came out the other side, and he was okay. He was able to get up and walk around a few minutes later. <laughs> God, that's so horrifying. Can you imagine being next to him? No, I don't even want to think about what that would look like. She's like, Phineas, you okay? <laughs> oh my God, the rod went through his head. And then he gets up like, ah! But apparently... Phineas Cage was not only able to get up and walk around, he was able to get on a cart and ride back to town to wait for a doctor to come and attend him to take care of him and check him out. And so how, how was he? <laughs> well, he was sick for a while and he lost vision in his left eye, which is near where the rod went through. But he was okay, physically at least. That's so bizarre. How is it possible that he was okay? So that's really just telling us that different parts of the brain do different things. So if that bar went through the motor area of the brain, then he wouldn't be able to get up and walk around. Or if it went through the part of his brain called the cerebellum, which is really in charge of motor coordination, then he wouldn't be able to get up and walk around. And so even though he could walk and talk, he was actually never really the same there were some changes, so he didn't have the same personality anymore. He used to be a very soft-spoken man, but after this accident, all of a sudden he became very uh, kind of coarse and would swear and gamble and do things that he really didn't do before. He became a lot more impulsive. So his personality changed completely. Yeah, and like Rachel said, he had been a nice, respectful, hard-working businessman before the accident. But afterwards, he couldn't stick to plans, he wasted money, and people who knew him before said he just wasn't nice to be around. Oh, wow. So what happened to him after that? Well, he lost his job as a railroad foreman, and he ended up touring around New England with a long iron rod that went through his head. <laughs> so he was kind of a sideshow for a while. It's like Phineas and his rod. Yes, yes, and he actually, he did carry the rod with him wherever he, he went until his death. Wow. But he was also examined by a doctor who wrote about him as a case study, and that's a scientific study that looks at just one example. That was kind of how he became famous. <laughs> 
Yeah, that spread the word about him because he had such an incredible story. Yeah, I'm sure it's not every person who has a rod go through their head and then they are fine, question mark. And so really at that time, people were able to realize that there's not only a link between the brain and your behavior, but your brain and your personality too. And that's because by some stroke of fate, the iron rod went clear through Phineas Gage's frontal lobes. It went through the frontal lobes and it went through the part of the brain that really is uh, in charge of kind of making those personalities and, and having impulsive behaviors. They're basically in the driver's seat of your brain. And those are really in charge of kind of higher order operations, higher order thinking, problem solving, um, being able to shift from one thing to another. So that's all where uh, poor Phineas was having problems. Yeah, it's the thing that helps us separate good decisions from bad decisions. And so basically from when he no longer had use of his frontal lobes, he wasn't able to take care of his money. He wasn't able to stick to plans. Those are all things that we use our frontal lobes for on a daily basis. Also, it's too bad. So Phineas lost, um, lost the part of his brain that he needed to make good decisions. And so he was just kind of drifting from one thing to the next for the rest of his life, right? So, so what happened next? How did he end up? Well, that's really still an interesting question because it's a mystery. What? Yeah, scientists are still debating how severe his brain damage was. Huh. There's all these different accounts of his life, and there's been recent photos and other clues that have turned up. Early stories painted him as this wanderer, uh, incapable of holding down a job, you know, sort of... Um, a ne'er-do-well, exactly. as they would have said. Exactly. But it and it's even though he wasn't the same in terms of his personality, he still did manage to lead a life. And he traveled and worked in South America. He ended what? what? South America? Yeah, exactly. So that sort of throws into question this um, account of him being incapable of making having the higher order thinking that Rachel was talking about. So well, so he went to South America, but. How did he die? Where did, did he live for very long after all this happened? He did all this traveling, and he ended up in San Francisco, which is quite a long ways from Vermont. And that's where he died 12 years after his accident. So when you have any sort of injury in your brain, sometimes that can make seizures happen. And it looks like he was having increasingly serious um, and frequent seizures. And then he had a really, really bad seizure and went into something that's called status epilepticus. And that's when your brain can't stop having a seizure. And that is what uh, led to his death. So Rachel actually saw his skull and the iron rod, which are on display at Harvard Medical School in Boston. It was awesome. Oh, I, I got goosebumps when I saw it. It was amazing because I was like, oh my gosh, this is what set off my career. And, and here it is. It was it, one of the most famous case studies in all of um, anything that has to do with neuropsychology. So it was incredible to see. Rachel works in neuropsychology. Sometimes she helps diagnose people who feel like they are not the same person that they used to be, like Phineas. You're looking at how people's thoughts and behaviors are influenced by their brain. 
Wow, so it sounds like Phineas Gage really contributed a lot to science, kind of by accident. Yeah, by a very unfortunate accident you would never want to happen to you or anyone you know. Yeah, I hope I don't contribute to science that way. I would rather contribute in another way. Yeah, but um, even though we learned a lot from Phineas Gage and we've learned so much more since, there's still so much that we don't know about the brain, how it works and how to fix things when they go wrong. So that's what people like Rachel are doing. Thanks, Rachel. And thanks for joining us. That's our show. Marshall composed our theme and I produced this episode. Thanks so much to Dr. Rachel Berman, Jenny Magic, Sarah Lentz, and our science advisors. Visit us at tumblepodcast.com and subscribe to us on iTunes. And make sure to write us a review if you want other people to hear us. We want to hear what you think. And join us next time for more stories of science discovery.